blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to, the land, uh, to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sikkim, into the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And here's going to be our focus tonight, verse 7 through 9. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And we'll stop there here in our booklet because the next booklet will cover the end of chapter 12 and verse uh, in, in chapter 13 as well. Uh, it's going to be a lot of traveling. And we're also going to see uh, sort of the hum, human side of Abram with, with some sin that comes along and some lying and things. But nevertheless, as we focus in, verse 7 through 9 begin to really show us the development and the display of Abram's faith. Uh, faith is not merely something that is seen uh, through the way that we think or the way that we feel or, or the things that we decide, but, but as well the things that we do. And we find that faith ultimately is to be the response to God's grace, to his revelation. And, and here in this, we find verse number seven. Uh, here, the revealing and the responding in verses seven through nine is going to be the focus. And the first portion of verse number seven is going to be key to, to, to look at all this. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, And of thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar in the Lord who appeared unto him. First of all, God reveals himself by appearing and speaking to Abram. It is not uh, anything out, out of, this is certainly out of the ordinary from what we see oftentimes in Scripture, but in the Old Testament we have to remember here, especially in Genesis chapter number 12, uh, Abram is not walking around with a full Bible. He doesn't have a study Bible. Uh, he doesn't have a New Testament, right? There is no New Testament yet, right? Uh, he doesn't have the Ten Commandments even, right? He's, he's got simply the fact that God appears to him, speaks to him, and he obeys by faith and trusts the Lord. He trusts in that revelation. And as we've talked about, as we've got signs throughout uh, the church, I think, I think they're in the restrooms, maybe, or at least they're in the guys' restroom. I don't know what the ladies look like. I haven't been in there. Uh, but there's a sign that says, uh, you know, God's grace reveals and faith responds, right? That, that's the whole idea of what we see throughout the Christian life and throughout the life of Abram as well and, and all believers of all time. Now, how God reveals himself or appears is the idea. When you think of appear, uh, when we think of the word appear, disappear, or reappear, you're thinking of something that is showing up in, in a physical realm or a physical way. Perhaps that is the case here. We're not told. Uh, so there is some mystery of how God reveals himself. But how God reveals himself in his, in his word to Abram here is not made clear. It could be perhaps a dream, a vision, or some uh, veiled uh, revealing. But nevertheless, we do know this. Abram does not see God's face. No man has seen God uh, and lived. But we do know this, that clearly there is such an impression made as God appears. He is not merely simply giving Abram a sign in the clouds. He's not lighting up some neon lights for Abram or shooting off fireworks for him. But he speaks. That is the appearing of the Lord. That is the revealing of the Lord. God speaks, and that is revelation. Uh, ultimately, when we think about revelation, the idea you and I might think about the book of Revelation, which is the idea of the appearing or the revealing, uh, the unveiling, if you will. And this is exactly what God does here. Uh, all revelation about God comes from God. And so what comes next is this idea of, uh, of 
uh, of God showing up, appearing to, to Abram, however he chooses to do so, whether dream, vision, however, it could be a voice. Remember, later on in the Old Testament, there's going to be times where God's going to speak uh, through a, a talking donkey. He's going to speak out of a burning bush. He's going to speak out of a cloud and of a pillar of fire. So God is going to speak, and that is the key of revealing, and that is the key of the appearance. The appearance is not so much that we need to focus on what did God look like, what did He smell like, act like, where did He walk. That's not the case. The focus is what comes after this. It is that God speaks. God reveals Himself through appearing to Abram in order to reveal all the more through His words. This is how we operate. We operate by the Word of God. Ultimately, God appears the most evident when He speaks. His voice does the revealing. If you wish to see God, then you must first hear Him by faith. Romans 10, 17 tells us, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This is why the Word of God is so key and critical and important. We see that the Word of God is not only inspired and fallible and inerrant, but it is sufficient. And we must understand that the revealed Word of God is sufficient for all manner of our living. It is uh, the, the most necessary uh, piece of our, of our life. It is the sword uh, uh, for the, the Christian. It is what we live by. It is our bread. It is our water. It is our sustenance. If you separate the Christian from the Word of God, you are separating the Christian from the voice of God. And so if we want to know who God is, we have to go according to what He has revealed. If you want to know something about God, it must be according to what God has revealed. If you want to know more about God, it must be according to what God has revealed. And for you and I, we have such a privilege to have God's full, final, sufficient, completed, revealed uh, word that tells us who God is, what God is like, what He has done, what He is currently doing, and what He is going to do in the future. And so we are even more blessed in some ways than Abram or Moses or, or, or Elijah because we, uh, while we are not seeing things coming out of whirlwind or a burning bush or here having an appearance, we have all the God-breathed word given to us, inspired, preserved, and kept for us. And so we must see that in today's life, in today's world, the need for the Word of God is more important perhaps now than ever. There is such a denial of God's Word. Uh, and here's the issue is that so many today want to know about God or they want to see God. They want to hear from God. And they begin to do this. You ever heard of folks who say, well, I'm just, I want God to show me a sign. Anybody ever heard that, right? God has given us a sign. It is the Bible. It is the Word of God. It is the only sign that we need. It is the only revelation that we need. As a matter of fact, they were asking for signs in Jesus' day, and Jesus said it's a wicked and perverse generation that seeketh after a sign. He said there's going to be one sign I'm going to give them, and that's this, uh, the same sign that the prophet Jonah had. I'm going to be uh, dead and in the grave and raise again, right? That is the key. And so we find that the gospel is the true and ultimate revealing of who God is, what God has done, and what God desires. And it is all ultimately found in the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word of God is given here. He says, unto uh, the Lord appeared unto Abram, right? And said, and that is the key, and said, God speaks. We must remember that God has spoken. So often today, we are looking for a new or fresh word from God. Here's the issue. We do not need a fresh word from God. The Bible from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation 22 and everything in between is just as fresh as the day it was first penned. If the word of God has lost its freshness to you, it is not because the word of God is no longer fresh. It is because you have gone in the flesh. And here's what happens. Every one of us tonight gets guilty of this sometimes where it does, we feel stale and stagnant. 
We've got to understand the Word of God remains true. It remains steadfast. It remains uh, a living bread for our soul and sustenance for us to encourage us and to remind us that God has spoken and His Word is sufficient for every moment of our life. Now, in this speaking, here's what we see. He says to them, to Abram specifically, unto thy seed will I give this land. That's all we are told that God says. God doesn't have to be very long-winded here. As a matter of fact, what God says is, is just one sentence. Unto thy seed will I give this land. Now, let's back up for a moment. What seed does Abram have? None. What land does Abram have? None. So what we're finding is that God's promises that were given back in verses 1 through 3, it has to be dependent solely upon God's word and God's work because ultimately it's God's will to do this for Abram to make him a people that was not a people to give him generations and a blessing and to do what he said he would do in these previous verses. Now Abram is 75 years old with a barren wife. Now it is assumed that she's up in age as well, right? And so with this, we have already discovered back in chapter 11 that she was barren, she had no child. With Abram being older in age, and we're going to even see later on, it is going to be literally physically, physically, biologically impossible for them to have a child on their own. This shows the work of God's miraculous hand and divine character to uphold His promises and to perform a work for His people. We see then in this chapter, back just a few verses, that the Canaanites were in the land. Uh, in verse number 5 and 6, he gets to the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came in verse number 5, and then and the Canaanite was then in the land. Well, who were the Canaanites? They were a rebellious and idolatrous and immoral people. They went against God and His Word, and they went against God's ways. They, unlike Abram, did not call upon the name of the Lord. They, unlike their uh, ancestor Noah, did not, they did not call upon the name of the Lord as he did. They did not walk with God as he did. So we find this. Abram is 75 years old with a barren wife. He himself has no seed. So, the first thing that God says, unto thy seed, well, you can ixnay that, he's got no seed. And then the very next thing, the land was occupied by pagan people. We see, he says, I will give this land. So we find this. That ultimately, whether it is life or land, it is held by God. God has authority over every life. God has authority over every square inch, every square mile, every acre, every every molecule in existence. God owns the universe. It belongs to Him. And so what we find is that in this, it was not Abram's to simply go out and conquer. He's not calling Abram to arms and say, hey, go gather yourself up an army and then go out there and, and see if you can defeat the Canaanites. No, he says, I'm going to give you this land. Why? Because this is God's work and God is going to get the glory out of all of this. God gets the glory out of your salvation, not you. God gets the glory out of my salvation, not me. God gets the glory out of our normal, everyday, average obedience to, in the Christian life, not us. So this is why, as we've said a million times, we'll say it a million, a million and a half times again, every bad thing that you and I do in our life, we can take full credit for that, right? We can go, yep, I did that. But every good thing that we do, it is Christ in you. So therefore, He gets the glory out of the whole thing. Now, God's promises here... They make no earthly sense, but certainly they make sense to the heavenly, to the divine, because it is dependent upon God's character. His promise is divine, speaking from everlasting to everlasting with infinite wisdom, might, and purposing grace to fulfill His will. God here is not only beginning to reveal this word to Abram about who he is and what he's going to do and what he's going to do through and to and for Abram, but this tells us more 
about God than it does about Abram. This is God revealing himself to Abram and to us. And in so doing, he is saying, Abram, I'm going to do something that you could never do, that no one else in this world could ever do, that no one else could ever dream of or imagine. This will only be done by my hand, by my power, and I'm going to, by my grace, not only offer these promises, but I'm going to give you every provision by my grace to get you through to see these promises fulfilled. And some of these promises we're going to see later on, especially with that of the land that has been given, the Israelites have never occupied all of the land that was given to them. That day is coming. Now, if people keep messing around, they're going to find out real quick, and and Israel will have what belongs to them. And it does not belong to them because of their might, but because of the might of God. It does not belong to them because of their own power, but rather because of the power and the promise that God has given. God said, I'm going to give it to them. Therefore, it belongs to them to them because it belongs to the Lord and they belong to him. Now this, of course, like the previous promises given in verses 1 through 3, have present and future uh, age promises. And so this is important. The land part of these promises here in chapter 12, uh, I believe in 13, and then when the covenant actually comes in 15, the covenant is specifically going to be given to Abraham and it's for the Jewish people. And so here's what we got to do. We got to understand that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant when we deal with land, seed, and a blessing, well, you and I are part of the, the faithful lineage, a seed of faith, if you will. You and I get the, the benefit of the blessing that, uh, that are found in Abraham, ultimately because they're found in Christ. But then what about the land? Well, here's the issue. You and I do not live in Israel. You and I are not Jewish people. We were Gentiles. We were Such were some of you, and the Lord has saved us from darkness to light. And what we find is this, that this distinction between the two, but the land promise was given to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, not to Gentile believers. Now, you and I get to one day go live in such a land only when we return with the Lord after the Great Tribulation. And so we'll get to step foot there. I've had people ask me today, uh, would you love to go, uh, you know, if, if things weren't happening right now in Israel as they're happening, would you like to go on a trip to go Israel? Well, there's a part of me that says, yes, it'd be incredible to go there and to see all these things. But there's another part of me that says, no, I wouldn't really care to because right now it's in ruins and I'd rather just go see it one day when it's new, right? It's going to be made better than what it ever has been in the first place and we're going to be with the Lord there. And so ultimately, Jerusalem and Israel is going to be in ruins until the Lord makes it not ruinous. ruinous. And ultimately, what makes it not ruinous is the fact that the Lord one day will dwell there along with his people. It will be a beacon of hope, a beacon of light. Uh, One commentator writes about this, God was dealing with Abram, not in his private and personal capacity merely, but with a view to high and important interests in future ages. That land, his posterity for centuries to inhabit as a peculiar people, the seeds of divine knowledge were to be sown there for the benefit of all mankind and considered in its geographical uh, situation, it was chosen in divine wisdom as the fittest of all lands to serve as the cradle of a divine revelation designed for the whole world. Now, here's that's simply a fancy way of saying this. God chose this land for a specific reason. Why? You ever notice this on a map where Israel sits? It's at a crossroads, isn't it? You figure Africa to get anywhere else has to go through Israel. Uh, we see that the land as well, it is the intersection and the crossroads of, of Europe and Asia. We find that the major uh, religions of the world, the major political socioeconomics, of the world, they all converge right there. 
This is why the end times is going to play uh, a role. Uh, the, the biggest role is going to be you know, through Israel and, and those uh, who either go and oppose her or those who choose to bless her. Uh, and so what we find is that God knew what he was doing long before, uh, long before time began. Uh, God was orchestrating these things by his grace, purposing his grace to bring these things about ultimately so that he would reveal himself. All that God does is with a purpose to reveal himself to his people. All that God does is with a purpose to reveal himself so that we might know him, so that we might ultimately know him through and, and through uh, specifically the person work of Christ. Now, as we get furthermore into verses 7 through 9, we see Abram responds to God's revealing in the only way that was applicable, and that is worship. When God speaks, that's important, right? Matter of fact, there's nothing more important than God speaking, right? Uh, could you imagine this today, right? Um, if, if we saw a whole, I mean, the most news we've ever seen happen at one time in the world happen today, I mean, everything goes off, the whole world shuts down. I mean, news is everywhere, right? Uh, every country, let, let's imagine this, every country today gets a new president. Also, their economy crashes. There's natural disasters in every country. There's going to be a lot of news on the news station, isn't it? Not much of it is going to be very good. But none of that would even compare to the fact that today, on whatever today's date is, at such and such time, God spoke. Now, when God speaks, we find that He reveals Himself, and God speaks from the very beginning of things. Uh, we, we see all throughout uh, Genesis chapter 1 what happens. God said, God said, God said, God said. God created not by anything else except for the very power of His Word, the very power of His breath. He simply spoke and it came into existence. So who is like God? Who, who can we liken Him to? Who can we compare Him to? There's none like God. God speaks and it is done according to His divine plan and purposes throughout time, throughout time and eternity, throughout the ages, ultimately to bring about His will, to reveal His character, to reveal His nature, and his attributes so that his creation would see him, would know him, and respond to him rightly by faith and worship uh, throughout eternity. Now in this, notice how Abram responds. God speaks, and I see while I give this land. And immediately, we don't see there's any hesitation, we don't see if there's anything else or any other thought process. There's not a give and take in the conversation. It's a one-way conversation. God speaks. That's, that's what, what is needed. Now you and I, when we talk about talking to God, you ever notice this? When we talk to God, we do all the talking. <laughs> we think about this. We, we often hear folks talk about prayer being us talking to God. Well, that's true to a degree, but your prayer life had better have an awful lot of listening in it as well. An awful lot of Bible reading with it as well. That we had better be making sure that we are in tune to hear the Word of God. Why? Because God has spoken in His Word. God still speaks to those uh, who, who have His Holy Spirit. He's leads us to the Word of God. The, the uh, incarnate Word procl is proclaimed in the inspired Word and leads us day by day by His Spirit to get into this Word so that we would know Him, so that we would see Him, so that we would trust Him, so that we would worship Him, so that we would live according to His will. But the immediate response here is that He builds an altar. He worships is what is implied. What is implied here with the idea of building an altar is much like with Noah and much like many before him, even in the, uh, in the early stages of Genesis is that here what he builds is a, a stone altar, a place of sacrifice, 
You say, well, where did he get the sacrifice from? from? Remember, he's got a whole lot of possessions. That's going to include cattle and sheep and oxen, a whole bunch of things. He worships the Lord. And why does he do such in a way to shed blood, it appears? Because he knows that's the, those who have lived by faith, that's how they've always done it. From the very beginning there in the garden, from the very first sin, blood had to be shed. And blood was offered and worshipped, not merely just for remission of sins, but in adoration of who God is and that He would accept sacrifice and worship. So here we are reminded of Noah building an altar after getting off the ark. His first response is to build an altar and, and to praise God. He had escaped judgment through God's grace. Now God appears to Abram. And he responds by faith to worship God for who he is, what he has promised, and trusting that God will fulfill his word, even though Abram cannot physically see a way. But notice, even in verse 7, we don't find Abram going, God, I, I really appreciate that. That sounds wonderful, but I hate to break this to you, but I don't have a seed. My wife can't have a child, and we live in a tent, and so do all of our servants. We don't have a home. We don't have a mansion. We don't have a fence. We don't have anything so how's this going to happen? He simply trusts God at His Word. If you want to know what the Christian life looks like in its most simple form, and I believe that Christian life should be much more simple than what we've made it to be, it is this. We trust God at His Word. But here's the issue of our day, dear believer. We will never trust God at His Word if we are not in God's Word. We will never trust God's Word if we do not know God's Word. We will never know uh, to learn to, to trust His voice when we do not listen to it, right? And so here he hears the voice of God and he worships immediately. There is no real worship without faith. It is faith that leads us to worship. It is faith that, worship, uh, that brings worship to God and offers ourselves as a living sacrifice unto God. It is faith that makes worship acceptable unto God. It is faith that leads us and, and, and puts this desire in our heart to want to worship God. This is why today we must understand this. Every time that we gather here in the church, it is a worship service. Now, I know this on our signs, on our tracks, and the way our, our thinking goes. Wednesday night, well, that's Bible study night. Sunday school, that's Sunday school morning, right? Uh, then 1030, that's worship hour. And then Sunday night, well, that's PM service, right? We have all these different names, but what should it be? Each time we gather, it is to do what? To worship the Lord. How about this? When you go home, what is your life to be lived like? It's to worship. How about in your job, in your workplace? It's to be done to the worship and honor of God. To do all things to the glory of God. To do all things in an act of worship. You can worship the Lord taking out the trash. Matter of fact, sometimes you are worshiping the Lord in a better spot and a position when you're doing the mundane average things and when you are here and you're singing half-heartedly. Right? Or if we come here and we're praying, or uh, not praying, and we're just listening to whoever else is leading us in prayer, and we're wondering, oh, oh they stumbled over their words, or they forgot to pray for this, right? And we, our mind begins to wander. Now, now, here's what we find. Abram immediately lives, and he shows us what this life of faith looks like, and then it's real genuine worship, and real faith produces real worship in the life, and that is what the life of the Christian is to be. So whether we are abased or abounding, whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we're in church or out of church, whether we're with the saints or by ourselves, Life is to be lived to worship the Lord. True worship only comes from being content with and in God. Now here's how we know Abram was content with and in God. He immediately built an altar and he worships this God who was spoken. He does not need to converse with him any longer. He does not need to ask God a million questions in order to worship him. He does not need to ask God any specifics about the land or about the seed or how that's going to come to be. He simply says yes to God. That is what worship looks like. 
That is what worship truly is at its very root. Here he builds an altar. Now the altar was important to Abram because it was a place to meet with God, to offer sacrifice for sin, to show submission to God, and to worship God. Christians have an altar also, Hebrews 13.10. We meet with God at our own place where we remember the sacrifice Jesus made for sin, Ephesians 5.2, where we submit to God as living sacrifices, Romans 12.1, and where we offer the sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13.15. Altars are important. They were important then because they would literally sacrifice an animal to worship and honor God and to have remission of sins as they trust that there must be a substitute for their sins because they cannot pay or atone for their own sinful deeds and actions. They cannot clean up their own heart. They need God's grace and mercy extended to them and received by faith. We must understand here that this altar was a place where God and man could meet together. It is a place that is a sacred place, a beautiful place, a place of true worship, a place of true faith, a place where grace and faith meet is there at the altar. And here's the whole point of the altar. The whole point of the altar is so that God's grace would cause our hearts to believe Him and trust Him and and that grace and faith would be met together and that the Christian life would be seen, that we would then be literally altered. Altars ultimately are to alter something aren't they it's the idea altars are meant to alter our will to his will when we think about coming forward or going to an altar we often think about coming down here to get a hold of god and have him listen to us and have him you know fix something in our life we've missed the point of an altar the whole point of an altar is to bring us to a place of submission and surrender to the lord It is where we come and we give Him, yes, our cares, our concerns, our burdens, our sin, all of these things, but ultimately it's where we give Him ourself and we say yes to the Lord in complete surrender and absolute surrender and absolute worship and adoration. Going to the altar does not change God's will. It's supposed to change mine. Unfortunately, much of our prayer life is seeking to change God's will. Much of our time spent at an altar, whether it's at home, or if you've perhaps made a, a prayer closet there or a space where you like to go and pray. It could be a, 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 chopping, a chopping log out back that you like to go or a, or a piece of timber or a shed that you like to go pray. It could be perhaps the altar up front in the church. But here's what we think is that sometimes that we go there to those places of prayer so that God would fix everything. But I believe the issue is that we need to view altars as the place where we meet with God. God meets with us. He deals with our hearts and our hearts are left surrendered to him completely. This is not a one-time deal. Abram would not only make one altar, he's going to build another one in the very next uh, couple of verses here. We see that this happens over and over again. And then we find that this is a life of worship. This is a life of being altered. It is a life of being surrendered to God by grace alone, through faith alone. The altar was meant to be a place of reverence as well as a reminder of God's promises, presence, and provision of grace. Ultimately, the reason why you by faith might walk down an aisle and come to an altar to pray, whether it's to simply thank God or perhaps to confess sin or to perhaps to pray with a brother or sister uh, who is struggling or they're praying as well, it is ultimately to reverence ourselves before God to revere the Lord but it is well to remind us of who God is who we are and what God has done and is doing now for us as believers in Christ he builds this altar 
unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And then it says, And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Why does he do this? Several reasons. We see later on, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all going to build wells. Well, they're going to dig wells and they're going to build altars. They do this for several reasons. One, because the altar was the place where they met with God and God met with them. The well was a place where they could uh, obtain water to feed their flocks and, and you know, to give water to have life, if you will. We find both the need of the physical and the spiritual nourishment of mankind and that God is the one that provides both. But what we find in this life is that here, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down the line, had a place that they could remember that that was a place where God appeared. That was a place where God revealed Himself. You and I need such moments, I believe, in our life as well to remember that there was a time in our life, our salvation, where the Lord opened our eyes and got a hold of our hearts. There should be those times and those moments, those places in your life, dear Christian, that you go, the Lord dealt with me here in this spot. I'm sure some of you, perhaps, uh, how many of you all got saved in a church? All right. Do you remember uh, if we're, do you remember the spot where you got saved? Yeah. All right. You could probably go back. Now, I'm not saying you're saved because you remember a spot or you had some sort of uh, wild moment where you go, that was the spot, that was the date, that was it. That's not, not necessarily the case, but we should understand that when God meets with us, we ought to have that as something that we remember. Why? Because throughout the rest of your life, there's going to be times where you feel far from Him and He feels far from you. There's going to be times in your life where you feel as if He has left you to yourself or that you are too far gone in your sin that He won't take you back. There's going to be times in your life where you simply are struggling with who you are in Christ. There's going to be times in your life where you simply need to do one thing and one thing only, and that is remember. Remember who God is and remember what He's done. And remember that time that the Lord dealt with you there. Remember when the Lord met with you there and helped your heart, brought you up out of the miry clay, saved you, or convicted you, or drew you, or encouraged you, or built you up or called you to a great purpose or calling. I remember as well the, you know, the place where I, where I got saved was at a camp, and I remember the spot, and, and I remember uh, e- even the, the pews and, and the aisle and, and the, the same space where I was sitting when the Lord called me to preach. And, and I remember the, all those things. We remember those things. Why? Because it reminds us that God spoke, God still speaks, and God will continue to speak through His Word to reveal Himself to us so that we might know Him. In all of this, Sorensen writes, Thereafter Abraham, for reasons not noted, moved on southward and pitched his tent on a mountain between what later would be called Bethel to the west and Hai or Ai to the east. There he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Again, Abraham formerly worshipped Jehovah God, perhaps pleading for fresh mercies as well as additional gratitude for blessings already received. It is of note for the first time in his life that he called upon the name of the Lord. That is the attitude of salvation. It is a fruit of salvation to call upon his name. It is a prerequisite of salvation. You must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. The Bible tells us in Romans 10.13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a Bible promise. To call upon God's name, as we have seen all the way back in Genesis chapter number 5, is this, it means to call upon His nature, His character, to trust Him completely with the whole heart 
of faith, assurance, and surrender to Him, to His Word, to His work, to His will. It is a giving of oneself altogether, calling upon His name. It is to rest your life, every moment, your weight of eternity, the weight of your sins. It is to place it all dependent upon His name. What is in His name? It is His character. It is His attributes. It is His actions. It is who God is and what God does in His name. With this, He builds this altar, calls upon the name of the Lord, and He worships. He shows us what the Christian life is to be. He shows us what the life of faith is to be. And notice as Sorensen writes, I love this little, uh, little quip he puts in, again, Abraham formerly worshipped Jehovah God, perhaps pleading for fresh mercies. Perhaps in this time of calling upon the name of the Lord, the idea that this praying and, and crying out unto Him, perhaps he's now asking God for that seed, for God to open up his wife's womb. Perhaps he's asking for them to be able to conceive or for him to show him who his seed will be. Perhaps he's showing and asking God, Lord, by your mercy, by your grace, would you show to me what land you will have me to go, where you would have me to go next, where you would lead me, where you would have me to make a, a permanent dwelling, a home, what have you. He's asking now, God, Lord, show me these things. MacDonald writes, the presence of hostile Canaanites was not an obstacle to a man who was walking by faith. Abram next relocated between Bethel, house of God is what it means in Ai. Uh, true to form, he not only pitched a tent for himself, but also built an altar to the Lord. This says a great deal about the priorities of this man of God. Here this shows us that Abram's mentality and focus is one that is done and led and lived by faith. Abram here is not living by the flesh. He's living by faith alone. He's trusting the Lord and His promises, provision, His very presence to be with Him. He's trusting by faith in the revealed grace of Almighty God. As this takes place, he trusts the Lord. He builds the altar. He begins to move forward in his journey. His focus is on hearing what God has to say and doing what God wants him to do. Furthermore, JFB writes, by this solemn act of devotion, Abram made an open profession of his religion, established the worship of the true God, and declared his faith in the promise. Each of us must come to such a decision as well. What we find here is that as Abram worships God and, and, and goes through such and, and, and praises Him and calls upon His name is that in this, you know who else is going to see this? Sarai, his wife, Lot, his nephew. What an impression this would make on the both of them. How about his servants as well? Later on, we're going to see the importance of this because they're going to find Abram's faith put to the test throughout his life and they're going to find that though he does not always uh, live by faith, he oftentimes will fall in the flesh. Uh, once more picturing what the Christian life is, this constant war between the flesh and faith. Yet they're going to see a man who simply trusted God and wanted God more than anything and wanted God's will more than anything. But here's the thing that we must note as well. Abram can't keep walking unless he keeps worshiping. The only way to keep walking in our pilgrim journey of faith is to continuously worship God in faith as Abram does. What we need tonight more than ever is not merely to learn how to walk as Christians, but we need to learn how to worship as Christians. If you and I can get worship nailed down in our life and we can make worship a part of our everyday life, if worship would be at the forefront of our minds, everything else in the Christian life is going to take care of itself. If, if your desire in your work 
and your home and your heart is to worship and know Almighty God, the rest of the, rest of the details of your life are going to be taken care of. Now, what I mean by that is not that you're going to get all your wants and all your wishes and your water streams are going to come true because you worship God, but rather you are going to learn what it means to walk with God because you know what it means to tarry with God, to worship Him, to be in a prayer closet, to be in a time where you simply give your undivided attention to the Lord who deserves our praise and our adoration. Worship is the key to the Christian life. Worship in many ways is the Christian life. All things in our life are to be done as a worshipful act to God. Everything is to be set apart. Set apart to God. That is what worship is. That's what a life of holiness is. To be totally set apart from the world unto God. Guzik writes, Even in the land God gave him, Abram never lived in a house. He always lived in a tent. Tents are the home of those who are just passing through and do not put down permanent roots. Now, if you own a home, what some of you do for fun, and well, some crazy people, is that they buy a tent from Walmart or wherever. They buy a whole bunch of other camping equipment. And then what do they do? They go sleep out on the ground in the woods and they go, wow, what a relaxing weekend we had. Relaxing weekend, sleeping in a tent in the wood. No, that's not relaxing. You've got to put up that tent. You know what happens here in about 15, 20 minutes when we go home? I'm not going to have to put up my house. It's already there. I'm going to have to enter in a key code. It's, I'm just kidding. I'm not telling you my key code, right? You were waiting, weren't you? Bunch of nosy people. No, I'm not telling you that. I'm going to walk right in. We have a permanent dwelling, but here, Abram had no permanent dwelling. He was permanently living in an unpermanent dwelling. Living in this tent, trusting God, looking and longing for something more that was not temporal, but eternal. He was looking for a city, for a place whose builder and maker was God. Here we are told, as Guzik continues, he says, we too are to live like tent dwellers as pilgrims on this earth. We should live as people who have their permanent dwelling place in heaven, not on earth. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We won't get into it tonight. Get it, uh, we'll get into it a little bit maybe Sunday, but, but do some homework, read through that, and you'll see our eyes are to be focused on the eternal things, on the heavenly things. Guzik continues, he says, Too many Christians want to build mansions on earth and think that they would be happy with tents in heaven. A pilgrim is someone who leaves home and travels to a specific destination. A pilgrim isn't a drifter. A pilgrim has a goal. Abram's goal was God's heavenly city, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. And this also is our goal. We live in a world today that is so goal-oriented and goal-focused and trying to have gains and riches and comforts of the world. The goal of the Christian is not to be comforted by the world. It is to be conformed by the Word. It is to be conformed in the image of Christ. It is to look and to long for that heavenly city to be with the Lord, to see Him face to face, to know Him, to walk with Him, to enjoy His presence forever. We find that you and I will never long for the eternal things unless we learn to worship the Lord. As a matter of fact, I believe that worshiping and true worship is an expression of longing to leave this world behind. We are far too comfortable here. Our roots are too deep here in this world. We are far too concerned about the economy of this world than we are the spiritual riches that we have in Christ. 
We are far too concerned about retirement plans and, and, and saving pension pennies or, or perhaps that we're too concerned with having the newest toy or, or the newest, latest, greatest comfort or the approval of man than we are the approval of God. We must uproot ourselves and begin to live as Abram did and live as tent dwellers, as pilgrims on a journey. Our destination is not earthly, it is heavenly. Waiting on the Lord and walking in the Lord go hand in hand. The one needs the other. It is the sum of the Christian life. We must learn to wait on the Lord as we wait on His promises. Here as Abram has to wait on seed and land to be given. And he must, as he waits, walk. We often think that waiting is simply some sort of passive moment in time or some sort of passive action. Waiting is active. It is actively waiting. You and I should be actively waiting for the Lord by listening to His voice, by heeding His Word, obeying Him, walking as He says walk, walking how He says to walk, walking where He says to walk, living according to His Word. Worship is not at home in the heart whose home is in the world. When we live in such a way that the world is more of our home than the things of God, we will not have worshipful hearts. We will not have worshipful services. We will not even begin to scratch the surface of what worship ought to be. When we learn once more to reverence God, to reverence His Word by faithful obedience and to have a place of an altar, if you will, of our life where we are a living sacrifice and simply saying yes to the Lord. That is the only way that we will learn to live this journey and to move on in the Christian life and to move on in our life as we await the Lord to call us home to Him. Our home is not in this world. As we sing, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. We must return to such a mentality. I'm afraid today that if we do not, we will continue to see what the Bible unfortunately prophesies, and that is there's going to continue to be a great falling away. There's going to be a continued boom in idolatry and immorality within those who profess to know Christ. It is one thing to profess Christ. It is another thing to possess Christ. It is one thing to say that you are a Christian with your lips, but your heart is the real telltale. It is the one that actually tells the truth. What is in your heart? Who is in your heart? Your heart's focus, your heart's goal, that tells us what we need to know. Tonight, may our heart's goal simply be like Abram. May the goal of our heart be God alone. Not getting things from God. Not even getting comforts and blessings from God, but simply knowing Him. There's no greater blessing than the promise of being able to know God the Lord Jesus Christ. May we praise Him for it. And may tonight and tomorrow and each day after find a place where we meet with God and God meets with us and that we simply learn to say yes to Him as we journey as pilgrims in this temporal land. Let us pray. Father, we love You. We thank You for this night. We're grateful for Your Word. Lord, help us to heed it. Help us to obey it. Help us to simply trust You. Lord, as much as Abram did, we pray, Lord, that we would do even all the more, God, that we would live and walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, help our hearts and our, and our minds and our eyes to be 
focused upon Christ, focused upon the eternal, and Lord, that the things of this world would grow strangely dim to us. Lord, that we would not care about the things of the world, that we would be uprooted and, and, and that we would live in this temporary world knowing that this is just our temporary place of dwelling, that we are coming home one day to be with You. Lord, what a day that will be. May we long and look forward to it. Father, I pray that You be with each one of us now as we go. Uh, Lord, that You would keep us safe, that we would trust You, that we would be obedient to You, and that we would glorify You in all that we say, all that we do in our life, and that we would uh, be excited and grateful and prepared to gather back again this Sunday to worship You in spirit and in truth with Your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed night. We will see y'all Sunday morning.